just keep on learning about who you are um, and also just keep on being curious and exploring different things. That's Sarah Simmington, the Performance Director for England Netball. I'm Stu Holiday, and welcome to the Focus Mind podcast. the latest Focus Mind podcast. This is a series that I, Stuart Holiday, a performance and sports psychologist, use to help reveal the kind of work and people that I meet in my everyday job, who are exceptional leaders in their field across sport, business and entertainment, to help us understand what they do on a day-to-day -day basis to optimise their thinking and manage their emotions to get the best out of themselves and those that they work with. Fundamentally, I help people develop their mindset and their psychological strategies and skills. And this episode is one that I'm really pleased to share. Sarah Simington is a former Olympic cyclist who rode for her country at two Olympic Games, transitioned to become a performance director after stints as both a policewoman and at UK Sport. She returned to the Olympic world as a performance director for GB Archery at the London 2012 Games before she took up the same position at England Netball at a period of huge change as the sport became more professional and she's had to grow both the business and performance sides in her role. And that is something that I often do in my work, helping people in business develop a mindset that helps them think like an Olympian or a sporting elite in order to be able to help their performance. And in her role, she has to do both. I guess the thing that we might have seen in her performance as the head of the England netball team is how she's pulled everyone together for that amazing last second gold medal win at the Commonwealth Games in Australia last year. This year the England netball team are having their World Cup performance in their home country in Liverpool. That's later in June so if you want to get tickets I'm sure you can see encore how well they've come over the last three or four years but this is her journey what she's learned from it and how she's developed her thinking behavior and mindset along the way i hope you learn as much from this conversation as i did at the time enjoy hi this is stuart holiday and welcome to the focus mind podcast with me today is sarah semington from england netball the performance director indeed um, can you just say hello sarah hi steve and I just want to know first and foremost, uh, to get an idea for everyone who may not know who you are, um, can you give us an outline of what you do as the Performance Director at England Netball? Uh, that's a big question. Um, I simply boil it down to three things, if, if I'm honest with you. Uh, when often people ask, what does a Performance Director do? I think um, very simply is you're, you're, you're sort of in charge and uh, overlay the strategy of the sport and that's not about the here and the now it's often about you know in two four five ten years time um, and then about how you actually use the budget and how you prioritize the budget to actually implement and operationalize that plan and then thirdly and by no means uh, least is about having the right people on the bus um, Doing, doing the right things in the right order, uh, and again, prioritising that. So that's how I often you know, break it down into three things, because I'm a simple soul. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I can 
not remember more than three things. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that in this particular role, I've been really privileged because I oversee the performance side of the sport mm -hmm. and the pathway, but also the strategic direction of the Super League, which is the league that actually um, runs in this country. Mm -hmm. But equally so, I sit on the executive board as well, or executive, um, yeah, executive board with the CEO, uh, finance director, commercial director, development director. Um, and we basically run the business and oversee that as well. Mm. And that's interesting because you straddle, probably in a unique position, the performance in the sport, but also the business side. And is that a fair assessment compared to other PD roles? or? I think um, it depends on the sport and the, the, the size of it and where it's at in its journey. Mm. Um, I think probably the, the PD role is probably having to become more, more focused on the wider business. Um, not all, but in this particular role, that was something that attracted me, if anything. To, to sort of accept the position, the opportunity to really learn uh, but also input into where the business as a whole goes but also how each department worked collectively for the good of the sport. Mm. It seems to have, from the outside, and I've done a small bit of work for uh, Clarity uh, when uh, Sarah started at uh, Netball, but it seems to be a real twin track that as the sport has grown as a participation sport, as the England side have gone on to be more successful, that in line with that, there's been the business growth. So you've got new kit deals, you've got the Vitality sponsorship. Um, as you say, the Super League, it sounds like, or it feels like you've had to kind of do both simultaneously. Is that how the last four or five years has been? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, I think it's not to take away the performance of the, the, the squad itself. And often in most national governing bodies, the performance side is seen as the, I suppose, the sweet shop, the, you mm. know, the, the, show, the shop, shop front basically, and success breeds success, but ultimately you need um, a very clear vision about how you grow the other bits or the other streams of a, of, of a sport. You know, ultimately it is about producing products for, you know, particularly a netball for all ages, all, you know, all ages, all standards um, to kind of get build membership, whether it's like bringing women back into the sport or slightly changing the format of the sport so it uh, can be played by all ages, for example, walking netball. Mm. Um, that's one thing I think netball has been, well it has, it's been really, really successful in doing, is just creating a, a range of products that any woman can actually engage with a sport. Mm. It doesn't necessarily have to be a member, it could be a drop-in session, it could be a walking netball, it could be back to netball. There are so many different avenues about how you can pick up the game. Likewise, um, you know, from a commercial perspective and sponsorship and ticketing and broadcast, that whole piece of the business as well has had to be re-looked at, grown um, and pushed forward alongside the success of the performance squad. And I know that you're someone who really does believe that mantra that you don't do these things alone and people are a huge part of everything you do and how you operate. Have you had external consultants or people come and help you on that business side to kind of sharpen your business acumen? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's my business acumen, but for the, for the actual sport itself. So, we, you know, initially we had to bring in different consultants to come in and look at our social media and website, uh, you know, as to where, 
basically how we're engaging with our audiences. Um, and they came up with a series of recommendations around how we use Twitter, Instagram, our website, all the different channels that are available now, and how we actually slightly refocused on what we did and the, the types of messages we are using. Likewise, um, you know, we've got a broadcast deal with Sky at the moment. Um, that will become up for renegotiation about the next 18 months. Um, and those conversations are already starting around, you know, how do we grow, grow the audience and the viewership, but also the product of the Super League as well, um, and make it even more attractive and viable as an investment uh, tool for the sport going forward. You know, you can sort of see across the UK, there's a real boom in women's sport. You've got the likes of women's football, cricket, rugby, um, and they've all got their own respective leagues. And it's just a really exciting time for women's sport in general, um, but particularly netball. So one of the questions I had, friend of mine I was with yesterday, I was mentioning that I was going to be talking to you today um, and we'd been talking about how big football is on Sky and BT. Um, sport as a entertainment channel is growing all the time. How do you, the question they had was how do you as a PD um, with all these other competing sports kind of get your message heard and ensure the growth continues when you've got other people competing almost for the same space? That's a good question. Um, now, if the CEO uh, was sitting in the room, she would very much talk about our USP as being the only women's sport in this country. If you think about the other women's sports at the moment that are starting to grow and evolve, um, they, they've got a men's game equivalent and in one sense that does give them a, an advantage often from a financial monetary perspective but in the next breath she, she would be sitting here and saying actually the USP of netball is that it's for, just for women and it's predominantly women yes there are men that play it in this country yes there are leagues and it's particularly um, far more played prevalently in Australia and New Zealand, but she genuinely believes that's the power of this sport. And is the heritage of England and netball helpful? Because, I mean, I know just personally my mum loved playing netball as a kid, and you talk to a lot of females of different ages, and you know, you ask them about netball, they played it at school, and then maybe it's sort of disappeared out of their lives. Is there a, a, a way in which you can lever the fact that it's still used in education, or was in education, yeah. to help you? Yeah, definitely, it's still part of the national curriculum, which I think, you know, is long may it continue. Um, but secondly, I think you're absolutely touched on it. Um, you know, I think most, if you ask most women, they will have played netball at some point. Um, and often, you know, they kind of leave the sport for whatever reason. But that's what I think we've done really well as a sport, is actually got a range of ways to come back in and made it far more accessible, uh, there's different formats of the game, um, and it's about how do you evolve that, but also how do you continue to attract women back in. Mm. Well, talking about women uh, being involved in sport, um, I know from personal experience talking with you and working with you, um, that you love your sporting activity yourself. So let's go back to the beginning, um, and just give me an idea of, like, because you were an elite athlete, um, and I'm interested in what drives people. So what got you into sport in the beginning? Uh, what got me into sport in the beginning? 
I think I was one of those kids where I was I was quite hyperactive, so it was um, often driven by myself. I mean, my mum and dad occasionally they still go, oh, I'm not quite sure where you got this gene from. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, my dad was a very good competitive sailor, mm. and my mum was a good competitive tennis player. Mm. Um, we lived abroad for most of my life, so. Uh, I was born in Venezuela, um, we lived in Dubai, we lived in Iran for a year just before the revolution, went back to Dubai, lived in Singapore, um, and I think just the lifestyle um, and the activities that, you know, my parents, you know, brought us up in, we were always, uh, yeah, we were always brought along in fresh air activities, um, always about going out for walks and stuff. But alongside that, I just came across, well, all through my education, I had some really, really good PE teachers mm. who, I suppose, you know, just offered up more and more opportunities where I was always willing to stick my hand up and have a go, basically. Um, I think it started well. My mum still recites a story at the age of two or three. We were living in Venezuela at the time. We had these six foot fences around our house. Um, and she was like, Oh, I wonder where Sarah is. It got a bit quiet, basically. <laughs> and um, she kind of was, you know, shouting me through the house. She thought I was, meant, I was meant to be asleep, basically, having an afternoon nap. But anyway, it turns out I was scaling the six foot fences. <laughs> to that day, she still thinks, or she still recites that tale about me just going out for my adventures and just being at, trying to, well, always being active. Yeah. Um, and that's continued, I suppose. So you mentioned just about how you had um, your PE teachers and others who maybe saw something in you that you know, they, they, they saw that enthusiasm and energy and wanted to tap into it and help you get the best out of yourself. Is there, is there any pivotal people in your sporting life in your early years up to when you became an adult that you can remember? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say there was a uh, swimming teacher in Singapore. Mm -hmm. He just about, I think, I don't think he quite made it to the Olympics, but he was a national level swimmer for Canada. Um, but he was a teacher over at this international school in Singapore. And that's where I started to really take up swimming seriously. Um, and it was, it was, well, in that particular sport, he was just so passionate, but you could tell he was so knowledgeable about the sport. Um, and there was a really, really strong swim sport at that particular school. So, you know, I wouldn't ever miss a session um, and I was always, always trying, I was asking 101 questions about what I could do to get faster, basically. I mean, that was probably the first person. Um, I went to a boarding school, I went to two boarding schools actually, but my second one, particularly, there were two PE teachers there that, um, in different ways, really supported and encouraged me to um, take up different sports. So I'd never played hockey, um, so I started hockey at the age of 14 and ended up playing county and southwest schools and junior England um, and you know they literally travelled me around the country to be able to go and get selected for whatever. Likewise um, athletics so I kind of ran 800 metres but I also threw javelin and discus quite an eclectic um, array. <laughs> There's a heptathlete in there trying to get out. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, heptathlete yeah. with a bike. <laughs> That's it. Um, so as you can sort of see it was quite far-reaching and Likewise, um, I, I picked up squash at the time, uh, and the boyfriend at the time, he was a very good squash player. 
Uh, it was also my dad, he played a bit of squash as well. So after breaking a couple of his, rac rac uh, his rackets and losing my temper several times, I hate to say, mm. um, I, I just wanted to get better and better within a range of sports. So yeah, it was, um, Oh, those were only just a few. My dad, as I said, was a keen water sports mm. person. So likewise, I was brought up on windsurfing, sailing. We had our own boats. I competed as um, in racing. racing. Was there any recovery in your teenage years or were you out all the time smashing it? <laughs> More or less. More or less. And then I think again, I'm just starting to recall some of my memories actually. When I was in Singapore, I used to go to this say international school uh, which was you know range of activities and sports you could dip into I also took up karate as a, another example of course why not let's just add another sport for fun <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the funny thing is I, I, I do think this is a bit abnormal even I can say this but I would often run 5k five times a week so I'd go home do my, do my homework eat a bit of something but then I'd take myself off for a 5k run off my own back and that was outside of all this other organized sport and what have you and i have no idea to this day why but i just was i don't know i was quite just driven to do this four or five times a week basically and i wanted to do it i really enjoyed it likewise um i was bought uh, not my first bike but uh, my first racing bike so to speak um and i used to go off for hours by myself just you know, um, exploring, exploring, yeah, and just all these random adventures. And thankfully, my parents were quite open-minded, and they were just, you know, they wouldn't see me for God knows how many hours, and but they never really stopped me from doing that. Yeah, in the, in America, they call that free-range kids. <laughs> you were you were a definite <laughs> free-range kid. Yeah. But I'm just picking back up on the point about what you were saying about those pivotal people, and you were describing very much how they were doing the admin side of it, driving you around, dropping you off. But I always think that, and what I've seen with other people who've kind of really made it, there's a certain amount of either belief they don't really instill in you, but maybe they just make you realize, I could do this, I, I could go somewhere with it. And that's what I'm just curious to know about these two or three pivotal people you've mentioned apart from the admin side to actually facilitate the chance for you to go and perform these sports, was there anyone who gave you that sense of belief, yeah, I'm going to give this a really good crack? Yeah, they were, they were all supportive, you know, outside of the, as you say, the admin piece. Um, they, they just always encouraged me. Mm. Um, and that gave you the belief? Oh, yeah. I think I always, it sounds a bit crazy as well, but I always knew that I was going to go to the Olympics, but I wasn't quite sure in what sport. But I hadn't found the sport that really, really suited me. How old were you when you had this thought, I'm going to go to the Olympics? 15, 16 years old. Um, okay, let's just take that, um, let's let that sit for a moment. How many 15 or 16 year old kids in this country right now do you think have gone, hmm, I think I'm going to go to the Olympics? Yeah, it was a bit of a crazy dream. I didn't know whether I was. Right. But there's a certain amount, I'm not calling you arrogant, but there's a certain self-determination there that's going, you know, I'll go to the Olympics one day. That, that's quite sure of yourself. Yeah. At a time yes. where a lot yes. of boys and girls at 15, 16 are very uncertain about life, yet alone sport. Yeah. That's quite a unique way of looking at, at what you're doing. But I guess you're so, it sounds like you were just so embedded in 
physical sporting activity that maybe that was the only destination for you? I suppose so. Um, you, you know, I knew it in my mind, but whether it actually was going to become come off was another matter. Um, but I think I, I've always had a quiet determination about me. Uh, you know, we this is what I want to check in, <laughs> like, because the competitor was the next part I was going to ask you about. Because anyone can play sport and you know really enjoy it. Um, the sort of people I'm thinking of who love participating. You're not just a participant though, you've got a competitive edge almost in whatever you do. Mm. Has that always been present from when you first were climbing walls in Venezuela? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's still always there, too much to my frustration at times. <laughs> um, yeah, it's always been there. I mean, I'm, a, you know, I'm quite actually a shy person, but I, in, in, I've always been very, very determined, driven, competitive, and I think I've done more uh, psychometric questionnaires and profiles where it, it keeps on coming, it always comes, it's always shown through them, whether it's MBTI, Spotlight, mm. uh, you know, all the different ones that are out there, I think I've like, you know, used five, six different ones, competitiveness and driven nature always comes up at the top. So that just reaffirms what I probably felt as a 15, 16 year old. Mm. So here's, here's a question we ask in psychology. Are you driven by competition with others or more competitive with yourself, would you say? Um, I think it starts with competitive with yourself. I think it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's about being the best who you can be. But ultimately, when you're standing on the line with others, it's about beating them. Mm. So it's not the others that drive me initially, it's about me driving myself. But, yeah, when you put a number on your back, it's about actually beating others. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. From that point, the teenage years, the formation of your sporting identity um, to actually being on that line at an Olympic Games, what were the, what were the key things that happened along the way um, and your mastery of cycling, which is the sport you ended up um, competing at the Games with? Yeah, and it probably happened by mistake, if I'm honest with you. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I kind of got onto the fringes of the Great Britain triathlon squad. Mm -hmm. um, so at the time, I, what was I doing? Rewind. I was in the police force. Um, working shift work, uh, I'd, I'd had a bike, I'd done one triathlon um, probably about five, six years before and thought, oh, that's, you know, I quite enjoyed that, but never really thought about actually picking it up as one of my main, main sports. And as I transitioned into the police, I was playing hockey and squash, but with shift work and full-time work, it was just getting harder and harder to travel around the country. Um, and also just commit to the training nights and stuff and I just needed a bit more flexibility so in all honesty that's where triathlon came about y yes you had to swim train with others if you, you mm. wanted to get faster but you could do the bike and the run a little bit more by yourself mm. um, so that's why I kind of picked up triathlon and thought I'll give this a go obviously I had a strong swim background I'd run mm. quite competitively I've not Competed in the cycling discipline, but uh, it turned out to be one of my. Well, it turned out to be my strongest discipline. Mm. 
accelerate and continue uh, condense along into a short story mm. um, I was training myself doing shift work um, getting onto the fringe of the Great Britain squad for triathlon however I basically burnt myself out I ended up with chronic fatigue. surprise after <laughs> <laughs> what know. you just said who would have seen that one coming well, yeah, so again you look back and reflect and think you idiots yeah. absolutely idiot. it was a time bomb waiting to happen and yeah I ended up with chronic fatigue mm. um, that's probably one of the biggest lessons in life really is mm. uh, learning from that one experience about how A I understood myself how my body reacted to certain things but also the need for a coach to help guide um, guide you going mm. forward because at the time I was just learning on the job so to speak um, the next, the next same point in time, I wasn't quite sure about where I was going with the police force. So after three years, uh, I started to explore other jobs, um, but I was also interested in probably, um, <laughs> probably it was it, it wasn't a cop out. But I was like, actually, I want to go back into sport. I probably need a masters because um, mm. it was it was getting to the point where you needed something else to distinguish yourself when you're going for other jobs, particularly in sport. It mm. wasn't just about your undergrad. Yeah. So I went back to Loughborough. Um, start doing sports science um, major in uh, physiology there but that was the same point as when I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue and I'd already gone through a year and a half of not really understanding what was happening to me um, I kind of got bounced around from consultant to consultant ranging from someone to saying you know just take some more multivitamins to <laughs> <laughs> someone else saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, basically. Mm. Um, I ended up being referred on to a guy called Richard Budget, who um, worked with GP Rowing for many years and actually is someone who really understood around overreaching, overtraining, mm. the whole chronic fatigue, you know. Um, and it was the first time someone put a label on it and it was relief, if anything, because mm. I was like, is wrong with me I just couldn't you know quite understand it and put my finger on it was so, that disturbing yeah yes it was hideous mm. I wouldn't wish it upon my own worst enemy mm. because some of the symptoms that you, you you yeah you had were you know insomnia it felt like I got out of bed um, when I did get some sleep as in someone felt as like you'd been kicked at the back of your legs and there was probably elements of a small amount of depression there as well so it was I didn't really understand what was going on it was horrible and by then I'd gone back to Loughborough and all I could do was literally go to lectures and sleep or not sleep <laughs> in a lot yeah. of instances um, and get on with doing a masters and I didn't do any exercise that year uh, apart from walk onto campus and occasionally pedal onto campus just to kind of keep the body moving but there was no training and such I just had to listen to my body and slowly get myself back to where I was feeling a bit more normal and again I was really fortunate through triathlon there was a doctor called Rod Jakes who's now the chief um, medical officer in this country for English Institute of Sport he worked with triathlon at the time. I was very fortunate he actually helped support me come back from ground zero to riding a bike. And we started with 20, no, 10 minutes every second day at no higher than 100, 120 beats per minute. And I can remember this conversation going, Rod, it's hardly worth me getting changed. And he was like, well, that's where we've got to start, Sarah. Mm. And that's where we started. Um, 
So every day he would get me to, you know, just record what sort of how I felt, mood, sleep, um, heart rate, resting heart rate, just so that we kind of monitored and tracked my progression. But also as time went on, uh, could slowly get off a turbo train and start doing some recovery riding on, on the road. Um, and within about four or five months, I was back training, not fully, but on the road, and I was simply just, you know, cycling. Mm. Um, competitive by nature, as we've established. That must have been hell for you. It was, it really was. Uh, <laughs> good I, lesson, though. Oh, it, yeah, very good mm. lesson. Hard lesson, but mm. good lesson. Um, I was like, right, uh, what, what, you know, competitive by nature, what am I going to do? Triathlon as a sport had moved on by then. Um, it became more of a foot race, and mm. I was never going to run fast enough. I mm. think the fastest I'd run off a bike was 36 minutes for a 10k. You needed to be running 32, 33, mm -hmm. um, and realistically, I wasn't going to do that. I knew mm. that. So, again, another good friend of mine uh, said, Why don't you ever go at road racing? Um, and I was like, Yeah, okay then. So entered a few road races in this country. Um, I ended up winning one and got second in another. Mm. And basically got, I didn't know at the time, talent spotted by someone uh, who rung up Manchester mm. um, Cycling and, or British Cycling and said, listen, probably need to have a look at this, this person. So I got a phone call, um, invited me up to do a maximal uh, rig test, mm. which basically cycle to exhaustion. So I did that, um, got very little feedback. I kind of left and was like, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. Um, and then literally I got another phone call a week later from a guy called Doug Daly, who's a bit of a legend in this country. Um, he was a team manager, but also the, the main operations manager of British Cycling at the time, basically selecting me for the Commonwealth Games in 1998 in Kuala Lumpur. And I can still, again, remember this conversation vividly. Um, I had to ask him to repeat <laughs> what he just said to me because you know how you're hearing closes yeah. down you're like you have you you having me on like this um and that's how I got selected so that was my first foray into international road racing um mm. and to slightly accelerate the story again I ended up crashing and on reflection and definitely uh I think we all knew at the time, whilst I had the engine, I didn't have the skill to be right. able to ride in a peloton of, you know, 100 plus people. Um, and that was the big piece that was missing. I'd never done really road racing and all of a sudden I was accelerated into this international race. Mm. Um, so that's, yeah, I ended up in, in the back of an ambulance with a suspected broken coccyx. Um, thankfully it wasn't broken, just heavily, heavily bruised. Mm. That didn't deter them. Um, I was then selected to go off to a World Cup in Switzerland, which uh, was quite a lumpy profile. And actually, um, I actually discovered that's the type of profile I really, really liked. One day, hard, groveling races. Mm. Um, I ended up in the top 15 there. Wow. So uh, they then selected me for the World Championships, which was about a month later in Holland. Mm. Um, it was a circuit race, uh, again I had a few big hills, but again my skill let me down. I literally crashed uh, within half a lap as we were about to come down a massive descent. Um, someone clipped my back wheel, and I was on my front wheel actually, mm. and I came off. Um, and there was no way that, that was the end of my race. Mm. So um, that was all within about a four month type window. Um, 
And this was my fast track of um, <laughs> learning experience, is how I describe it. Wow. <laughs> into road racing. And at the time, um, I was writing up my dissertation. I had 300 pounds in my bank account, and I had my dad also at the end of a phone going, when are you going to get a proper job, Sarah? I Brilliant. Like, <laughs> I don't want a proper job. I'm quite excited. I'm quite, mm -hmm. you know, really excited about following this this cycling thing. Journey, yeah. Cycling, yeah, journey. Um, because there was no money, uh, I'm not being offered, you know, any form of guarantee as to what this looked like or didn't look like. And there wasn't the pathway that we have now and anniversaries no. and... Well, the, the was, it was about a year into lottery funding, mm. but in Really some small ways, amounts, I guess. Uh, yeah, but in some ways, like, I can, again, look back and reflect, British Cycling was almost putting you through... Uh, sort of talent confirmation phase they were trying to suss out you know who was this person and did they really have what it was that they were looking for mm. um, in the future thankfully um, there was it, well thankfully yes uh, and there was 15 of us that were taken over to Australia for I think it was just 1998-99 mm. the winter so we were taken out for three months again it was a bit of a smile of the fittest you wouldn't ever do this probably and this was the um, even Pete Keane says this to this day, 15 women were sent out with one training programme, no coach, no mechanic, um, and we were basically sent over there to go and train um, and get ready for what was the Bay Crit series in Melbourne, um, Tour of Snowy, and then the first World Cup, which was the first World Cup that would start um, the process of qualifying for the Sydney Olympics. Mm. Um, so it was a great experience, massive learning curve on many levels, which I could go on and on about, I won't here. But again, at the end of that three month block, I, you know, I'd grown not only in skill, but also engine capacity, but also from a learning experience. Mm. It was phenomenal. I mean, and I was, again, really, really fortunate to end up on the podium on that mm. World Cup in Canberra. It was the first time a British woman had podiumed um, wow. in, in cycling, in road cycling. And that actually, that one race and that one result um, guaranteed us three places at the Sydney Olympics. So it was almost like wow. a year and a half before Sydney happened, we qualified as a nation. Mm. And that's that was the start of my cycling uh, or road cycling adventure, so to speak. I was finally awarded a mm. athlete performance award. Right. So I could um, pay for some food and pay for some accommodation. <laughs> Get your dad like, back. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And pay my parents back because I had, you know, I basically got right, them going, will you lend me some money? Um, yeah. So that was the start of my cycling journey and uh, for the next six years, again, yeah. you know, I wouldn't swap it for this world. It was hard, it was really, really hard because every day, you know, you are literally, um, as you well know, you've got to consistently train to push yourself into areas that you've not been before but also learn as quickly as possible. And I was, still was learning. Um, and I think probably that was the biggest thing that I, didn't quite have at my fingertips come to the Olympics was that repertoire or library of experiences that many of those girls did have at that point. Mm. I ended up, I think I ended up tenth in that road race, but I was there at the kill, but I didn't quite know where to place myself in that sprint, mm. and that's the bit that let me down at that point in time. I had the engine power, probably had 
high enough sprint speed to get closer to the finish line, but mm. I didn't have the know-how the know how or how to use others to come mm. off the wheels. I guess in all of that journey, you talked about the six years and I think you went to the next games as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What was the mental learning and process like for you? Because obviously we can imagine you did all this training and riding and strength work, blah, blah, blah. But like as an individual, as an athlete, how did you grow? And I'm, uh, there's a sort of secondary question in the background. How have you used that experience in everything you've done since? Mm. Um, I suppose to try and even out the peaks from the troughs in all honesty. Yeah, it's kind of day by day approach you mean? Yeah, yeah, and, and also, well day by day but also month to month and year to year. I mm. mean, in, in most elite sport you can have more downs than ups, you know, mm. winning is so rare and when you, I think that's probably one thing I'd probably say is I probably didn't appreciate or didn't um, celebrate the successes as much as I should have because mm. I was already too fixated on the next thing <laughs> and that's one thing I've learned through my roles now is when you do have success make sure you celebrate it and recognize it and how do you do that um, talk about it mm -hmm. actually physically celebrate it mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know that can be small or large it's not necessarily about you know the big the big wins but it's also about the small wins as well and I think that's really really important to capture mm -hmm. um, and acknowledge and also talk about. Um, I think also going back and reflecting, it's about the consistency, it's not about just the one good training session. For me, I obviously having gone through that chronic fatigue experience, it was about actually putting back-to-back -back consistent training together mm. and incrementally building those foundations mm. that hopefully are going to put you in the best condition to be able to perform on a given day because ultimately you know Olympic Games um, particularly in road racing it was a one day event mm. so you had to try and get the best performance out on that one day um, equally uh, there was many training sessions that sometimes you just had to have the bravery to go actually it's not going to quite happen today I need to back off or I need to go home mm. and recover or there are other days where you think actually I really need to nail this because this is a really key session um, and I used to train you know I think I learned that some sessions I, I was it was best to do in a group I can remember some mm. sessions that are really hard but there was three or four of us that lived close together and there was a real commitment amongst the group where we dropped our egos and actually we really committed to doing that session um, but whilst pushing each other on whereas other sessions I knew that it was best to do it by myself mm. you could control it a little bit more um, and not get carried away with your competitiveness. <laughs> Which we know all about. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think some of what I learned through that was, you know, uh, the, the resilience to be able to learn and come through some tough situations. Mm, it's interesting hearing you say that, and I'm thinking back to Pete Bronker, who I interviewed for the last podcast, mm. and um, he's really big on training in groups, and that's partly what he ascribes his success to. Mm. And this is a guy who's gone from sub three marathon down to two nineteen, touching a 
Olympic qualifying standard. He's going out at Boston this year to try and go wow. under 219, get that time. But um, he's got a lovely analogy around the training and it's very in keeping with what you said that he sees the training in his discipline, which is much like your cycling, that it's like planing wood, like, you know, the consistency that you have to do, you know, you're looking to create something really special, but actually it's just constantly um, planing the wood, taking bits off, bits off, bits off, bits off, and having that big picture in your head. No, would you would you agree with that? Definitely, mm. definitely. I think that's like quite, yeah, I can relate to that. It's quite a good visual aid mm. to uh, the process that you, you would put yourself through. So you weren't medal obsessed. You wanted to go to the games, but you weren't completely like, I must get the medal. Um, Honestly, now, hand on heart. No, I wanted the medal. Right. Um, but the, but not to the point of obsessiveness, I guess. Like no, no. Um, what's the balance like? What would you advise a young athlete coming up, like who has aspirations? How would you get the balance between process, which we all hear about now? It's all about the process. It's all about the process, and then having that kind of real. We 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 know athletes we've worked with where you know it's like I want to win gold. I've got to win gold. Mm. You know how do you balance that out? How would you advise on it? use the word already, you've got to have a balanced perspective on it. It doesn't, it's not easy Accept mm-hmm. that, first and foremost. Um, yes, um, probably your drive, your motivation and your aspirations to, is to try and achieve that. But ultimately, um, you know, a lot can happen during that, particularly in, you know, in road racing a lot can happen that is outside of your control mm. um, whether it's a mechanical whether it's a flat tire whether it's just not feeling on form whether you've missed the move you know uh, road racing is like a game of chess is how mm. I always used to analyze it and sometimes you'd miss that critical move and other times you probably use one of your uh, one big effort, because you probably typically have three or four big efforts in each race and you probably lost one of your efforts unwisely at mm. some point. Um, so going back to your question, I think it, it's about, you know, uh, there's a bit of trite cliche, but it's about having that consistency of training to get yourself in the best possible condition and the right headspace to be able to perform to the best of your ability on that given day, mm. whereby you know, some sometimes it played out and sometimes it didn't. Um, I think I really struggled for a while after I came away from cycling um, mm. to accept that I hadn't won a medal. You know, um, I got, I was often within the top five in the world ranking. Um, I said I podiumed at World Cup level a few times. Uh, I got fifth in the World Championships one year. It by no means was I um, a failure. Mm. However, um, I know for a while I was angry, too strong a word, mm. but I, I genuinely, uh, yeah, was, was kind of like, I, I, I hankered for that medal. But that was almost like a symbol of, you know, true success for me. Mm. So how have you mentally overcome that? kind of thinking I think time doesn't it it right. softens your softens your outlook softens your thought process um, and also you recognize actually you know uh, sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't but actually you've got to recognize you know 
how good you were as well. Mm. Um, Celebrating that success. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There you go. So you talked about getting into a headspace, which are, and this is this for me is like where you know the there's a difference between just the average and then sort of being able to succeed and push on in your own docket in life. Um, and that you know you've got the competitive spirit, but you're talking about the capacity you need in your headspace to kind of go as far as you can. How have you taken what you did in cycling and sport into the world then where you're the poacher turned gamekeeper as a performance director? What what are the things from sport you've taken that you use, whether consciously or not, in your performance director roles? Um, I think that's um, the ability to bounce back mm. from things that haven't gone well. Resilience, you're saying? Yeah. Um, Ultimately, not everyone, everything goes your, your way, uh, particularly in a PD role, um, particularly in sports where you're uh, changing quite a lot of what the strategy might or might not look like. You know, we all know that uh, success doesn't necessarily go in a linear line, and it's about knowing uh, it's also about knowing which battles to really really you need to win versus mm -hmm. battles that you can just need don't need to spend inordinate amounts of energy battling i think that's another bit that i've learned um i like to think that i can read the people in the room quite well having competed as an athlete you probably know how to read the environment at a given point in time, whether it's you know in a training environment, a particularly hard session, or whether it's going into a game day or a set competition, um, I, I set I tend to take a real, particularly in my role, it's about actually standing back. For me, the performance director role is not about doing, doing, doing at that point in time. It's about standing back, observing, supporting those that are actually. Um, there to perform, mm. whether it's the coaches or the athletes. Um, I think it's well known that actually when it's going well, the performance director should be hiding in the shadows. <laughs> but when it goes to <laughs> shit, mm. that's often when it comes back to the performance director to help sort or help support whatever that, that scenario is. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting hearing you talk around the people and the team because as a road rider, it sounds like there was a lot where in your training you had to be quite solo-minded and you had to be very determined and you said about dropping egos on certain rides for training. Mm -hmm. And now when I've spoken to you in the past, you've said, you know, it's all about the people. How have you developed your capacity to get the best out of others, having been someone who had to think maybe a bit more for themselves? Um, I think if I look reflect back on my cycling actually I mean most people see it as an individual sport it was actually quite a team sport mm -hmm. um, and often you know depending on the profile of, of the race um, or current form sometimes you don't end up as the leader and people are supporting you and other and other times you are actually that support mechanism for the named rider mm -hmm. so I've always you know whilst I've done predominantly individual sports, I've also played team sports and I've always been quite a big team player. Mm. So I think that's still in my nature and I still continue to 
develop and grow on that in the roles that I've, you know, uh, taken on since. Ultimately, it's not about me in any of these roles. It's not, you know, success and it isn't about me. It's about how others collaborate um, and join up to that overall vision about what success is for that given sport. And how do you inject in your, you know, you talked about how you are this competitor. How do you inject the service competitor into a team because I mean I know that they're very motivated winners probably anyway but sometimes you know when people might have their you might have had something not go so well yeah. how do you inject that kind of right let's pick ourselves up you said that it's really important to be resilient how do you help others resilience be there in a support mechanism mm-hmm. um, help a mentor's too strong a word but just be that that support that, you know, ultimately, whether it's coaches, service providers, athletes, sometimes, you know, um, they need an, another ear or another outlet to, you know, chew, chew the fat with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in, just, have, just having that in, instilled confidence to be able to, and being clear that we actually can do this, and I'm being almost become across as pretty unflappable. Mm. You know, even if we've had a heavy loss, actually, it's now about how do we review this, reflect on it, how do we learn from this, mm. and how do we take that forward? You know, um, and not cling on to that because I think you know, losing it hurts any everyone, doesn't it? Mm. Particularly if it's a big loss, but um, it's about learning from that and how do we actually. Yeah, learn from that and then put it forward. So I think, it, yes, I hate losing. Um, mm. But likewise, you know, the current role I've got, there's a head coach there, Tracy, who equally hates losing. <laughs> so we're very, very similar in that way. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, she is the one that engages with the players. And ultimately, I'm the one that helps support her and the coaches around that team yeah. to remain confident, mm. um, remain positive, but also what else can we do to put us in a, the best position forward from a confidence perspective Great. To, to kind of perform. So um, I've got a few, few last questions just to wrap up with. Um, famously, and I can't have this interview without asking about it, we, we saw last year, last second win, Helen Housby next to uh, get the gold medal. Could you see that result coming from all the training and work you'd done as a squad, as a team, never giving up the resilience bit? Give us a bit of insight from what it was like inside and how short, you could see it coming. Yeah, short answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. 18 months leading up into those Commonwealth Games is all I can describe it as, and I've used this analogy before. Um, it was these green shoots were starting to pop up, whether it was in the training or whether we were starting to see it on the international circuit as well. We were getting closer to the likes of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, there was a build, there was a build in momentum and belief and confidence, not only in that player group, but also the staff group. Mm. Likewise, we did a lot of work around 
the environment and the culture that we wanted to create as a team. Um, and we also talked about why are we all here? Anyway, I can remember that conversation. It was actually all the staff and all the players in, in the room. We actually set this task actually about A, discussing why are we doing this, um, but B, almost creating posters about what this, what this, what this was about and why we were doing what it. What it meant. What it meant, yeah. 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 Um, and then we had to share that amongst the group and that was quite a powerful exercise that we went through that actually was brought back out and Tracy very cleverly brought it back out just before we transitioned from the holding camp in Brisbane and went into the village mm. um, in the Gold Coast because she wanted to remind everyone that this is why we're here and this is what we're about, you know, this is the, the next part of our journey. Um, so that was a big, big part of that, that journey over those 18 months. Mm. Uh, and by the time we got to the village, well actually I'll kind of go retrack slightly, our preparation and our planning going into Commonwealth Games, we really, really um, thought hard about it, but we also engaged with that player group and all the leadership group about how they wanted to orchestrate it and plan it. So it was a far more collective, collaborative approach around why we were doing certain things, when we were doing certain things, what we were going to do, etc. So those six weeks leading up into the Commonwealth Games, we first of all went into Sydney, um, and that was the first time the squad had come back together uh, after about two month period away from each other. And the purpose of that was bringing everyone collectively, and we kind of really talked about wanting the three different environments we're about to go through. Um, this one was about being, it being about relaxed, and actually just finding our feet together as a squad. So we organised a few um, match play opportunities against the Suncorp League mm. over there, some of the clubs over there. Um, and it was about getting those players back together as units, gelling together, etc. We actually lost two of them. Mm. And it, if we'd done that 18 months ago, there would have been panic in the mm. house. I'm not saying there wasn't, but there was actually recognition that actually this wasn't the end of the world. This was the purpose of what, what we were doing in Sydney, and mm. was the reasons why. Let's put this in perspective. And then we transitioned into Brisbane, into the Commonwealth Games holding camp, and we again we had a few more match plays against Super mm. um, Suncorp League clubs over there. And you could sort of see, again, momentum, the belief, all growing in the right direction. And then that environment was obviously, we were amongst all the other sports um, and it was just a recognition the ratchet up of the intensity of the environment mm -hmm. um, and again just before we went into the Gold Coast and obviously into the village where again all the sports are there all the nations and there we physically talked about what that environment was about and that was about you know going there to do the business but also recognizing that we were going to stick together as a team um, and it wasn't to say that we were going to be distanced from other squads or other sports but actually we we're going to stick together we we're going to look after each other as a family mm. um, and that's what the players were very very strong about they actually looked after each other they were watching each other's backs but also they talked about it they still continue to talk about it having fun along the way yeah um and enjoying it uh and again um i think if you'd asked me 20 years ago 15 years ago i, I would have gone having fun 
Um, <laughs> this is how you change. <laughs> yeah, this is this is how I've changed, and I, you know, but it, we all know, and I can reflect on my own better performances was when I was actually enjoying myself, you know, um, and it, it and that's one thing I think absolute credit to the players. Um, they really started to understand what was going to get the best out of them. Okay. Not taking away from the hard work that yeah. we did put in over that 18 month journey. Okay, fantastic. Great story and uh, great to hear. Um, just just a few more questions then. The, the first one, uh, just as quick as possible, what would you say from your history has been the hardest setback you've had to overcome? Two things. Go on. <laughs> um, first one was failing my levels. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, it taught me probably one of my biggest lessons in life that <laughs> I can't just go cruise through things. Okay. I've actually got to dedicate and put time aside to work, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the exam type scenarios. So, um, yeah. I, Again, I probably wouldn't have talked about that ten years ago. I'd have been a bit. Shaped. I've seen it as a failure, but actually, it probably it is one of my biggest learning curves. And what's the second one then? Second one was um, not meeting our medal targets uh, in London. Whilst mm. as performance director in archery, uh, I took it pretty personally. Mm. Um, but again, with reflection and time. Um, I also recognise that actually what we put in place uh, in a very short period of time, I'd only been in post for two and a half years, was actually the start, the foundations about how what and how the sport you know moved on from London mm -hmm. and reality in ill reality. Uh, it was it was a remote chance of hitting those milestone targets that were already in there before I even arrived. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't a personal reflection of me. Okay. Interesting. All my work. Well, actually, that leads then maybe then what's the best piece of, you know, we talked about resilience a lot. What's the what's your what's the bit where you've dug deepest in life to be where you are now? What's the occasion or setback that you've overcome that you think that's one I've I can use as fuel? Someone telling me that I couldn't or didn't they couldn't really see me in the role as performance director and being a success in it. We won't name names. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine what that would do to your competitive spirit, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, and then finally, the, the, the one that I really like asking everyone, do you have a philosophy that guides your life? Keep on learning. Mm -hmm. um, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open. Um, just keep on learning about who you are um, and also just keep on being curious and exploring different things. Um, I love meeting new people and I love meeting people and um, learning from them about their life journeys mm. but also their lessons as well. Um, and you take a little bit of that as well where you can. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't think I'll ever stop learning. And I want to continue learning. Do you remind yourself of this? Yeah, definitely. It's a real conscious thing with me um, that has become more and more within my mantra of who I am Great. and what I want to be. Well, what a brilliant positive note to leave it on. Uh, thanks very much for your time and uh, it's been exceptionally interesting hearing things which I thought 
I knew a lot about you, but you've, you've shown me new different things. And uh, for this year, uh, 2019 in Liverpool for Netball, um, the World Cup. Yes, yes. World Cup. Liverpool. Good luck with that. Thank you. I hope much. it goes well. Cheers thanks very much, Sarah. So thanks to Sarah Simmington for that interview and her time. It was a real pleasure. We had a lot of fun. And I'm pleased to say that now the Focus Mind podcast is available on both Spotify and in the Apple iTunes store where you can subscribe so that every time you release an episode, it comes straight to your phone. If you do like the podcast, please leave a star rating because that really helps us grow and be able to interview more and diverse guests um, from across the fields of sport, business, entertainment. And I hope that you're enjoying these conversations and you're learning from them as much as I am on my journey. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time.